You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Mata, and I have an art history degree, which many of you point out that I I do use, even though I always say I don't. Um, I don't use it in my professional life as much as I, you know, (laughs) hoped that I would when I was first taking out the student loans to obtain said degree. But I use it in my hobbies, this podcast, and in my personal life. So here we are. Um, And I bring that up because this is the first in, I I don't know, what can you say, an additional offering that I'm going to start working into this podcast. Um, I'm going to start affectionately calling these little mini-sodes, which is, you know, the intention here. I'm going to start calling them Art Bites, um, because I can't think of a punnier name for this. Um, But basically, what I want to start doing is just getting on the horn to chat with you all about updates and news in the field of art history. I currently have two pieces of news that I want to chat with you all about. We're going to do one in this drop and then one in a few weeks when there's a little bit more information about it. Um, These are things that link to subjects we've covered on the show. So I'm really excited to just sit down and this feels more casual, doesn't it? I'm going to try not to overproduce here. My fan is still going because it's summer. My back door is open. You probably hear those birds. There's a there's a tree in my backyard that is literally like a condominium for squirrels and birds. It's it's delightful, but I'm not shutting the door because we're just chatting. I have my coffee. I have my reference images up on like three screens here. So let's just dive right into this. Our first official art bite. The first headlines dropped about this maybe maybe about a month ago, and I've seen a lot of other creators discuss it as well, but I haven't gotten to add my two cents yet. So today we're going to talk about the portrait of Catherine Parr that is going up for auction. Yeah, auction in July. They have been auctioning off quite a few royal items this year with the, you know, the focus on the British royal family due to the coronation and the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. It's, you know, it's prime time to get those royal items on the auction block. But this, this piece of news was so exciting because it's, I mean, when it comes to Henry VIII's wives, we don't have a lot of portraits of them. So anytime one hits the mainstream, it's a big deal. In the Tatler piece about this portrait, it's called Exceptionally Rare, and they can use that language because this portrait of Catherine Parr, who was Henry's sixth wife, is the, quote, only known contemporary portrait of her that is still in private hands. So it's still owned by not a museum. As a result, it is initially expected to sell for anywhere between 600,000 and 800,000 pounds. However, my guess is that that number will go upwards, uh, maybe even towards a million pounds. Do I wish that a museum would be the one purchasing or receiving this portrait? Yes, of course I do. Um, I don't know how many museums have that kind of cash lying around or who have smooth-talked a big donor to the extent that they're willing to purchase something for a million pounds and then immediately donate it to them. But, you know, we can hope. Um, Maybe if we all... Well, I don't know how many people listen to... mm. Yeah, each of us would probably have to chip in about 600, 800 pounds in order to make this happen. Um, So I'm not going to suggest that we 
buy it and then pass it around sisterhood style. Um, but that would be a nice thought, wouldn't it? Maybe if we link up with the listeners of like vulgar history, we can all, we can make that happen at a lower initial investment cost to each of us. Okay, I will do a little bit of art historical analysis here um, and give you some of the background on this portrait. I will also, of course, put images um, over on the Instagram, even though this is a smaller mini mini-sode. Um, if you're not already following, and this is for some reason the first episode that you're listening to, we're not usually this chaotic, first of all. Um, and second of all, the podcast Instagram is at Art of History Pod, right? Nope, Art of History Podcast <laughs> on Instagram. I always forget because the email is Art of History Pod. Okay, so I always post images of whatever we're talking about over there. Um, so you can go scroll through. Later in the episode, I'm going to get a little in the weeds about details in paintings, so it might be useful to, to go over there to reference uh, for sure. So this portrait of Catherine Parr, it's so, it's, it's so rich. It's so like scrumptious as a royal portrait goes. There's a lot of rich detail happening here. It shows Catherine Parr. She's wearing a very elaborate Tudor gown with a square neck. She has pearls on her headdress, her French hood her pearl necklace, the neckline of her gown, and at her waist. Um, she has lots of rings on her fingers. She's wearing two pendants, which we will come back to. Um, and she just looks, her hair is like crimped and it's this beautiful like strawberry blonde color. The sleeves of her gown are covered in fur, like an oversleeve. There's beautiful like orange fabric on her sleeves with like it looks like silverwork embroidery on them. And then underneath her sleeves, you can see this black embroidered linen um, poking out. So like her, I'm guessing, shift underneath. It's just so ornate and, and just like, mm, it's so good. It's beautiful. One of my favorite painters of all time is Jan van Eyck from, um, you know, the Northern Renaissance. And this is my favorite thing about his paintings, just like the scrumptious way that he, that's the word I keep using. And I don't know why he just he depicts all these details. And that's, I think, why I love this painting so much, because the farther you zoom in, it just the quality doesn't diminish. Everything looks so painstakingly rendered. It's beautiful. Catherine Parr in this picture is gazing She's positioned at like a three quarter view, but she's gazing straight, almost like almost straight at the viewer at us. But it also kind of looks like she's gazing through us, which I find interesting. It's very stately. It's not it's not too imposing, you know, too girl boss of a pose. She's not like tackling us head on with her gaze, but it still is like a little assertive. Like I'm here. I'm the queen <laughs> and I'm going to use my position, which we haven't done a whole episode on Catherine Parr yet. Um, I want to because she is so fascinating. But we did talk about her a bit in my early years of Elizabeth the first episode. Go back and listen to that. <laughs> um, basically, what you need to know about Catherine Parr is Henry VIII was her third husband. Yes, third husband. And she would go on to have a fourth after him, who was, by all accounts, the man that she was truly in love with. This was Thomas Seymour, um, the former brother-in-law of Henry VIII, who was uh, the, the, sorry, the brother of Jane Seymour, Henry VIII's third wife, also the one that he, you know, was said to truly love. I digress. Anyway, Catherine Barr, um, by all accounts, she married Henry out of, you know, a sense of duty. He had picked her, and she 
acquiesced to his marriage proposal, not because she was sentimental, but because she recognized that it would be a good thing both, I think, for her family and for the country if she were to be in the position of queen consort. Um, She used her position as queen, I think, very smartly, very cannily, um, in order to promote pieces of the English Reformation that had been maybe... mm, set to the side by Henry VIII, who really only like was interested in the Reformation as far as it gave him authority. He wasn't so much interested in the spiritual side of it. Catherine Parr was, and she used her influence in that way to like promote the Protestant Reformation. And this did get her into a little bit of trouble a couple times <laughs> with Henry, but she outwitted him, basically, and she became the only one of his queens to outlive him. Um... And stay the queen. Anne of Cleves also. Anyway, she won, basically, uh, is is what we're saying. In the short term, she won. After Henry VIII's death, she did go on to marry Thomas Seymour. And there was some there was some weirdness there. That's what we cover in the Elizabeth I episode. Um, and she died a really sad, tragic death, kind of like after being kept, it seems. And I, you know, I'm using this term kind of loosely, but barefoot and pregnant by Thomas Seymour is always how I've felt about it. Um, and then she died kind of in her prime, kind of after, I don't know, almost it seems betraying some of her ideals as a stepmother to Elizabeth I and to her brother Edward, who was now the king. Um, like I said, we'll probably do a whole episode on her at some point just to dive in, dig into these details a little bit more. Um, but I think that's useful character information to have about her looking at this portrait because I think she enjoyed being queen. I don't think she did it reluctantly. I think she did it because she knew the power and the influence would be useful to the people that she cared about and the people that she wanted to promote. So in this portrait, she looks like what you would want a Protestant queen to look like. She's wearing black, which is a very austere color, one that the Protestants, you know, they liked because it wasn't frivolous, <laughs> um, like those bright, bold colors that the the continental Catholics were wearing. But she still looks like a queen. She's covered in pearls, which is very, in the language of like Tudor jewelry, pearls were a symbol of a woman's virtue. Um, she looks gorgeous and she looks strong and like she understands the weight of her role. She also looks wealthy and decadent and, again, everything you would want to see in your queen. Um, Because, after all, what are we paying for if not to to get to see beautiful women decked out in jewels? And that's a feeling that people have had about the royals for centuries, and they still have about them. (laughs) One of those jewels is important for this portrait because it is what identifies her so firmly as Henry VIII's sixth queen, Catherine Parr. Now, uh... A couple times we've talked about Tudor portraiture uh, in both the Elizabeth I episode and in my episode about the ghosts of Hampton Court Palace. We've had to chat about, you know, missing attributions of portraits, questions of who actually is sitting for it. And even to this day, like there's a lot of uh, not arguments, but like discussions that happen about, well, is this portrait actually of Catherine Howard or is it a lady in waiting? Something like that. The jewel that Catherine Parr is wearing in this portrait, the one going up for auction, is what helps us definitively identify her as Catherine Parr, which is really exciting. So at her chest, she's wearing this, it's like a gold um, pendant or pin. It's studded with, looks like black, they could be green, 
um, black and red gemstones. And then there are three pearls dropping from the bottom of it. And the top is shaped like a crown. The bottom is shaped like an oval. So it's like stacked. Um, this piece of jewelry was recorded in inventories of jewels belonging to, uh, what's her name? Catherine Parr. And on the show before, this is what got me really excited, we have talked about pieces of jewelry that have been inventoried as belonging to Henry VIII's queens. So it wasn't this one, but in the um, Ghosts of Hampton Court Palace episode, we talked about a, quote, pear-shaped jewel that belonged to both Jane Seymour and then Catherine Howard. And I'll post um, comparison images just reminding you what that looks like. Basically, the evidence for why a portrait miniature that has been said to be Catherine Howard, his fifth wife, um, the reason that people say so strongly, oh, it's her, is that she's wearing this pear-shaped jewel, not the crown-shaped one, but a pear-shaped one that has a ruby and an emerald in it. That jewel also appears in a portrait that we definitively know uh, is of Jane Seymour. So that pear-shaped jewel was inventoried as belonging to Jane Seymour as a gift from the king and also as belonging to Catherine Howard. Um, and that's enough evidence for me, you know, to say both of these portraits are of Henry's queens. That pear-shaped jewel, as I was looking for pictures um, of Catherine Parr for this episode, that pear-shaped jewel appears in one of her portraits as well. So a portrait in the National Portrait Gallery, um, which is attributed to the same artist as the portrait going up for auction at Sotheby's. Um, yeah, it's just the, ah, I love details like this. So the National Portrait Gallery in the UK has a portrait attributed to an artist named Master John, um, dating from, you know, the mid 1540s of Catherine Parr. In that portrait, she is shown wearing both the pear-shaped jewel around, like closely around her neck, and the crown-shaped jewel pinned to her dress, kind of in the same position that she is wearing it in the Sotheby's portrait. Now, the Sotheby portrait is also attributed to this artist, Master John. This is somebody that we don't have a lot of information about, which is kind of weird to me as he was commissioned to make portraits of several members of Henry VIII's family, Catherine Parr and his son Edward included, but there's not a lot known about him or his workshop, um, even though these portraits are absolutely stunning and I would love to know more. But the fact that that crown-shaped jewel appears alongside the pear-shaped jewel in one of these portraits of her is just, it's like a little Easter egg and I love it. It feels like it's something that she did just for us a little bit. <laughs> I should say we don't definitively know that this painting is the one that was painted by Master John, but it's very, very likely just due to the similar style, the similar pose, um, and the fact that analysis of the panel dates it to a right around the same time. Catherine Parr died in 1548. Um, the National Portrait Gallery painting of her is dated to about 1545. Um, and I think it stands to reason that maybe a second panel was completed either around that time or shortly after her death. Um, it's possible that Edward, uh, who became King Edward VI after Henry VIII's uh, death, commissioned another portrait of his stepmother once he became king. But it's possible. Um, we just don't know, which is kind of sad, but that's how art history goes sometimes. 
there is one other portrait of Catherine Parr owned by the National Portrait Gallery. In that one, she is also wearing the pear-shaped jewel. Um, I'll put this one on the Instagram just for like another visual reference to connect to the Sotheby's portrait. This one is dated to the quote late 16th century, so I don't know what that means. That could be that could be anything. <laughs> um, it could be before her death. It could be after her death. Um, a lot of the times, the analysis done on these paintings is limited to like dissecting the the panel that they're painted on and doing like a dendrochronology analysis basically discovering when the tree that was used for the panel would have been cut down so if you can identify like the latest that the tree could have been cut down to make this panel for a painting that helps you get a little closer to the date but it's not always it, you know it's not a foolproof method it's more of a method of relative dating but I like this portrait. Um, she's wearing a red dress and a very jaunty, like, feathered cap in this one. Kind of looking like a Henry VIII outfit, if I'm being honest. Um, but I like this one just to show, like, the comparisons in facial features and, and visual appearance between all three of these portraits that are of Catherine Parr. Um, a lot of Tudor portraits end up looking very similar, especially of women, because the beauty standards of the day were being imposed upon them as they were sitting for a portrait. Catherine Parr in all of these portraits has the trademark pale skin and like light colored hair that were beloved by Renaissance um, philosophers and thinkers, as well as by Henry VIII himself. <laughs> Renaissance and Tudor women were preferred to have very light complexions that showed a quote, balance of the humors. So healthy, a healthy complexion rosy cheeks, red lips, that kind of thing on pale skin. And Henry is said to like, you know, oh, an English appearance, fair hair being part of that. Um, and this is part of the reason that we think he didn't like Anne of Cleves, because she probably didn't have that trademark English appearance. She wasn't an English rose in the way that most of his other wives were. Okay, to bring us back to the Sotheby's portrait, um, Julian Gascoigne, Gascoigne, I don't know however the English pronounce French last names. That always trips me up. Um, the senior director of Old Master Paintings at Sotheby's said this, quote, this exceptionally fine portrait of the Tudor queen Catherine Parr is not only an incredibly rare depiction of the monarch, likely painting within, painted within her lifetime, it is also the only known contemporary portrait of Catherine left in private hands today having been in a number of prestigious family collections from at least the early 19th century. So two things I want to highlight out of that quote. First, calling Catherine Parr a monarch, I love. I love because technically she was a queen consort, but she was also appointed Henry's regent um, on at least one occasion when he left the, 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 the country, whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, Henry clearly trusted her to like run things in his absence. I think this was when he went on campaign on like his last military campaign. He called her regent. Sorry, like I said, we're doing this a bit more casually today. So I'm like Googling on my phone in the background. But yes, in 1544, when Henry um, traveled to Boulogne after a two month siege, he had appointed Catherine his regent in his absence. Um, and this was an honor that he had only given to one other of his wives before, and that was Catherine Parr. And, er, I'm sorry, there's too many Catherines. Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, who was, you know, a Spanish princess, she was raised to be queen, and she understood the game of, you know, court and politics that went into the throne very, very clearly. 
Um, and I think that's the reason he trusted her in that role. They were they were co-monarchs in a way that Henry wasn't with many, most of his other wives. Catherine Parr is the, I would say, the only other of Henry's wives that, that comes close to being on the same level with him as Catherine Howard. No, Catherine of Aragon did. Why did this man marry three Catherines? It drives me crazy. Um, let me know if you would like the casual and chaotic nature of this art bite format to remain a feature, not a bug, um, because this is how I talk. This is just, we're chatting. Um, anyway, so that's the first part I wanted to point out, the fact that she's a more powerful example of a queen consort than what Henry typically took on. And secondly, um, that Sotheby's director noted that the provenance is very interesting about this portrait. So provenance is the way that you can trace a paintings or a work of arts ownership back through time. And that's something that helps you determine whether it's legitimate or not. In the case of this Catherine Parr portrait, it first appeared for sale in 1810, um, belonging to a an MP, a member of parliament named John Dent. It was sold after his death in, I guess, an estate sale. It changed hands a few times before that. But then the, I would say the biggest sale and the one that like let it rest in the same hands for the longest period of time, it was purchased in 1848. Um, by Lady Sarah Sophia Fane Child Villiers, who was the Countess of Jersey, at the sale of the Duke of Buckingham's collection at Stowe House. If you've never been to the UK, put Stowe on your list. It's a beautiful estate. Um, now it's a school. I believe, who went there? One of like Prince William, did Rose Hanbury go there? I think Rose Hanbury went to Stowe House. It's a, it's a boarding school, but it's also, um, you know, a destination you can visit. And I stayed there as part of a tour in 20, oh God, 2018. I love when it pops up in my research because it's just such a beautiful place. The gardens are just gorgeous. Um, love it. Put it on your list. <laughs> so at a sale from that house, when it belonged to the Dukes of Buckingham, um, this painting was purchased by the Countess of Jersey and it hung uh, in the Earl of Jersey's principal seat, Middleton Park in Oxfordshire, for years and years and years until that property was bequeathed to the National Trust in 1947. Anyway, the thing, <laughs> one thing that I find interesting in the provenance of this portrait is that through all of that history, every time it was sold, this portrait was called a portrait of Mary married to Philip. So that would be Queen Mary I, Henry VIII's daughter. It was misidentified as her, unless, of course, Queen Mary inherited and wore some of the jewels worn by Henry VIII's, multiple of Henry VIII's wives, which I don't find particularly likely. Um, I think the Catherine Parr attribution is correct, but that attribution only seems to have come once the portrait, I'm guessing, was in the hands of the National Trust. It remained at the seat of... Um, Oh, what's his name? The Earl of Jersey um, in Middleton Park. But I think once they started caring for it and doing some research, that's when that attribution could um, be made, which is really exciting, isn't it? There also seems to be some attribution of this sitter as Lady Jane Grey in its history. Um, Sotheby's is citing several pieces of literature on this painting in their um, listing for it on their website. This goes up for auction in July. I think I said that. 
It is lot number six in their old masters and 19th century paintings auction. Um, so you can go look on their website if you would like to read about the provenance or maybe look into this literature. But the Catherine Parr um, identification seems to have been, the case for that seems to have been made as early as 1996, um, but most definitively back in 2010. So exciting, exciting things. So this is not also even one of the more expensive pieces <laughs> in this auction. Um, their estimate, uh, again, is that it will fetch 600,000 to 800,000 pounds. Um, there are other old master paintings in here. There's a there's a Rubens. It's St. Sebastian tended by two angels that is uh, expected to fetch anywhere between 4 million and 6 million pounds. So um, it might take a little bit more of an initial investment from each of us to get that one. But, you know, it's there. But the Catherine Parr painting, I think, is the most exciting piece of art in this auction, especially for lovers of English history and of Tudor history. So very, very exciting. Um, just because we haven't seen it. We haven't seen this painting in, it seems like decades. Now, in a separate Sotheby's auction, this happened, it was their coronation auction. auction. So it happened uh, in May, right around the time of the coronation. Another piece of Catherine Parr ephemera was actually sold. This is what is giving me my opinion, my guess, that the portrait is going to sell for more than what their estimate is. Um, because at the coronation auction, a private letter written by Catherine Parr to her brother William was also sold. It was expected to fetch 15,000 to 20,000 pounds and it sold for 38,000 pounds. So just like based on that margin alone is where I'm, I'm getting my guess, my upward guess of like a million pounds for the portrait. Um, the note is really interesting and I will put a picture of that on the Instagram as well. It discusses Catherine's very recent at this point marriage to Henry, um, Henry VIII, the king, <laughs> that guy. She starts it by saying Catherine the Queen is writing this letter, basically. Um, so you can see that on the left-hand side. I cannot read, uh, what's what would the word be? It's not old English, but I can't really read, I can't usually decipher Tudor handwriting. I can if I like really try. I don't have the energy to really try today. So I looked up a transcript. <laughs> um, at this time, Catherine, who was, let's see. She was 31 and she had married the 52-year-old monarch um, just days before writing this letter. The letter was written on the 20th of July, 1543. Um, it was also written while the couple were on, you could, I guess, call it their honeymoon, but it was the annual court progress, which happened every summer. Um, it was written at their first stop on this trip at Oatlands Palace in Surrey. In the letter, which she's writing back to her William, her William, her brother William, she writes, It hath pleased Almighty God of his goodness to incline the king's majesty's heart in such ways towards me. She explains that it is the, quote, greatest joy and comfort that could happen to me in this world, marrying him. And she invites her brother to, quote, rejoice with me in the goodness of God and his majesty, the king. Now, obviously, if you're writing a letter as the queen, you know, things could get intercepted. She's, of course, not going to write to her brother and say, ugh, this old fat dude. <laughs> made me his queen and I'm not happy about it of course of course for that reason she's writing that she's enthusiastic about it and that's like the most cynical way you can I think approach this letter 
But I, I don't know, Catherine Parr, she was a very diplomatic person. She understood how to work the men around her, especially Henry, and keep him on her good side. So it makes sense that she's um, writing the news of her marriage very diplomatically, even considering the fact that she had already been romantically linked to Thomas Seymour, her future fourth husband, at the time that she was marrying Henry. So she's not expressing bitter disappointment that she couldn't marry the man that she truly loved. Like, of course, because you wouldn't do that. That wasn't A, polite, or B, politically smart, (laughs) given that Henry had just executed a wife for the perception of adultery. But no, she's, she's writing enthusiastically about her marriage and... I think part of this sentiment is her understanding that the marriage is going to help her own family, which includes her brother, William, who she's writing to. The marriage is going to help them on the rise in the world. It's going to give them connections, give them power um, and, you know, property (laughs) and money as well. So it was a really good thing, even though it might not have been personally what she wanted. Um, But she was clearly positioning herself to make the best of things. And I think this letter, which again, sold at auction uh, last month is a part of that. Just, I love when the pieces of the story like fall together in this way. It's through, through objects. It's almost like I have a a museum history, art history, museum studies degree or something like that. Mm, Weird. Um, Really quick. Also in that coronation auction (laughs) were a few other items. Again, I, this isn't going to be my new obsession, I think, is going on the Sotheby's website and looking up their auction catalogs. Um, Because also in the coronation auction were a document signed by Lady Jane Grey at a Privy Council meeting, which happened during her very short nine-day stint as queen. That sold for what seems like a very attainable price (laughs) after quoting these very large numbers. Um, It sold for about £12,700. Also at this coronation auction, you know, they also had a 1950s replica set, like a full replica set of the crown jewels. So not even, obviously, obviously not the real crown jewels, just this replica set. And that went for £33,000. I'm guessing it actually used, you know, precious jewels and and metals. Um, I would have bid on that too, if it had been, if it had been lower. You guys need to talk sense in me so that I don't start bidding on things at some piece because now I'm hooked. Well, I've been ranting, not ranting, ranting and raving. I've been chatting about this portrait of Catherine Parr for half an hour, which is, that's not what I thought was going to happen. I thought this was going to be a quick episode, but I am not mad about it. (laughs) So if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever your favorite podcasting platform is. I do hope to do more of these Art Bite episodes in between our big episode drops, which happen on the last Thursday of every month. Um, so hopefully these will be a nice way to intersperse and tide you over between the big, um, well-scripted <laughs> drops. Please send me your feedback over DM on the Instagram, which is, as we have established, Art of History Podcast, or you can send me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. Yeah, I would love to know your thoughts. Do you like this format? Do you wish I would be more professional? Um, I can take it. Yeah, if it's not like criticism coming from a a bad place, uh, an ill-intended place, I can take it. (laughs) 
Okay, that's going to be all from me today. I hope you enjoyed just dissecting this this new piece of Tudor history as much as I did. I will give you a little spoiler. If you follow Tudor history news, <laughs> as I'm sure we all do, um, you might be able to guess what our next Art Bite topic is going to be. Um, I will leave it there for now, but some of you probably have an idea. That's all I'm going to say. All right, my lovelies. Thank you, as always, ever so much for listening, and I will see you in the next one. Thank you.